All right, 2 Thessalonians chapter number 3 this morning. 2 Thessalonians chapter number 3. We have arrived at the final chapter in 2 Thessalonians. And uh, between now and maybe the next couple of weeks, we'll conclude uh, this particular letter uh, that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. I want to read just the first five verses. And before we read, we're going to consider the subject a very powerful statement, a powerful declaration that the Apostle Paul is going to make here in this text. The Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful. Beginning there in verse number one, the Apostle Paul, writing on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, penned these words. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. And that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. But the Lord is faithful, who shall establish you and keep you from evil. And we have confidence in the Lord touching you, that ye both do and will do the things which we command you. And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. That declaration that the Apostle Paul makes in verse number three, but the Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful in contrast to the faithless that's mentioned in verse two. For all men have not faith, but God is faithful. The contrast there is striking. To be without faith and yet to be declared that there is a God who is ever faithful. Uh, There has never been a time, nor will there ever be a time, where God is not faithful. Uh, The word faithful is a powerful word often associated with something that we do or something that we attempt to be, but faithful is what God is. Uh, God cannot be anything less than faithful. If God was to be uh, faithless for even a moment in time, He would no longer be God. Notice because He is faithful, Paul writes there in verse 3, His faithfulness will establish you and keep you from evil. When you contrast faithful and faithlessness in verse number 2, you are dealing with an unchangeable God. Uh, We are living in a world that is changing. Uh, It has been changing. It will always change. What this world is today will not be the same even a year from now. We live in a changing environment. We live in a changing world. And what one day is, tomorrow may not be. But God is everlastingly the same. The same God we worship today is the same God of yesterday. The same God, when you and I have passed off the scene hundreds of years from now, God will be just as faithful then as He is today. He is unchangeable in all ways. When the Apostle Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, when he began the very first letter in 1 Corinthians 1, in verse number 9, he wanted to establish in the church at Corinth, just like he's doing to the Thessalonians, about God's faithfulness. And here's what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 9. God is faithful, by whom you were called unto the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It was God's faithfulness that called you into the fellowship with Jesus Christ. 
God's faithfulness has put you and I into the beloved. Paul, as he continued to write to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10, verse number 13, reminds him again of God's faithfulness during a time of temptation. He wrote these words, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Paul is majoring on the Lord's faithfulness. Faithfulness at all times, in all ways, in every area of life. The Lord is faithful. Because the Lord is faithful, Paul makes a couple of requests of the believers there at Thessalonica. You can see that in this text, of course, the chapter divisions are placed there by the translators, but the very first word, finally, uh, is marked by the beginning of a chapter, which sometimes chapter headings and chapter divisions are good, but this kind of breaks up the thought. Remember, Paul had been dealing last week when we studied this about being counted to worthy to stand fast in the Lord. We, re- we revisited the effectual calling of God. He reminded them how Christ has loved them. He reminded them how Christ had given them everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. He told them to comfort their hearts, establish you. So then the first word of chapter 3 is finally, which is related to the context in which he's been writing. But nonetheless, he uses the word finally and he makes a request. Finally, brethren, pray for us. Paul requests prayer. But I want you to notice that Paul's prayer request was not for himself. Notice what he prayed for. That the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. One of the most remarkable things about Paul is you very rarely find Paul asking for prayer for his own personal problems. You very rarely find Paul saying, I'm really in a bind today. I really need you to pray for me. I really need you to pray that God removes all this affliction. No, his prayer request was for the success of the message of the gospel. His prayer request was for the protection of those who actually are preaching the gospel. He said those that are are going out and proclaiming the word, that it would have free course, it would go unhindered, it would not be opposed, it would go forth. Paul understood what it was to face constant danger for preaching the gospel. I have been alarmed over the last few weeks about how many accounts I have witnessed of people who have been, for example, publicly preaching in many of these cities and towns that are uh, just under a great siege, how many of those preachers are actually facing physical confrontations uh, in a way that really is more than what it's been in the past. There is an opposition to the word of the Lord. There is an opposition to the gospel, even though it is the very best news a person can ever hear. It's an, it's an opposed message. Paul has understood what it was to face constant danger for doing nothing more than preaching the gospel. Paul was a man that depended upon the prayers of God's people. Back in Romans chapter number 15, towards the end of that particular letter, 
uh, Paul gives us a little bit of insight into the importance of how he desired prayer not just for himself, but prayers for the continuation of the gospel to go forth. In Romans 15, verses 30 through 33, Paul writes these words. He said, Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Now here's an example of Paul asking for prayer for himself, but here's what he wanted prayer from or for prayer for. That I may be delivered from them that do not believe. That's quite a statement. That God would deliver me from unbelievers. You see, even unbelievers in Paul's day did not respond or receive the gospel calmly. Oftentimes, Paul was beaten or uh, was brutalized because of his preaching the gospel. And he said, deliver me from those who do not believe in Judea, and that my service which I have for Jerusalem may be accepted of the saints, that I may come unto you with joy by the will of God and may be with you refreshed. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. This shows us along what Paul was saying in 2 Thessalonians about how much Paul relied on the prayers of God's people. Uh, friends, there is none of us who are beyond the need of the prayers of God's people. No matter how steadfast and sure we think we are, no matter how strong we think we are, we all stand in need of one another's prayer. But our prayers ought to be centered on the Word of God having free course. There's nothing wrong with asking God to relieve an affliction. There's nothing wrong with God asking to remove a, a cancer or a disease from somebody. But the ultimate purpose of prayer is that we pray that the Word of God would have free course and that those who are preaching the gospel would be delivered from those unbelievers who hate the gospel. That's what Paul was asking for. When Paul uses that terminology, brethren, pray for us, he uses that numerous times in his letters. Paul was himself a man of prayer. Paul prayed earnestly. Paul prayed diligently. But yet, even as a man who probably would surpass all of us in his prayer life, says, I need the prayers of God's people. Oftentimes, people who become very powerfully diligent in their prayer life often believe, I don't need the prayers of other people. We all need the prayers of other people. Brethren, pray for us. Paul, as we ended the first letter in 1 Thessalonians 5.25, that verse simply says, Brethren, pray for us. Paul knew what it was to need the prayers of God's people. But again, Paul's concern was not first and foremost for himself or even for the safety and the welfare of the preachers of the gospel, but for the advancement and the glory of Christ. Much of what we miss in our prayer life is because we're not praying for God's glory. We're praying for God to relieve an inconvenience in our life. Our prayer life ought to be centered on God's glory. Our prayer life ought to be centered on the gospel going forth and people of the gospel advancing so that people would hear the glorious good news that you and I who've been saved know what it is to be in Christ. Sure, we should pray for the health. We should pray for wisdom. We should pray for perseverance and safety of, of one another. But be sure that we're praying for the safety of those who are ministering the gospel to us and those who are preaching the gospel. What this world needs is not another program. They need the gospel of Jesus Christ to go forth. 
There is nothing that's going to come out of Congress. There's nothing that's going to come out of the White House. There's nothing that's going to come out of legislation that's going to change what the world needs. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet that's the very voice that's trying to be the loudest, but is actually being pushed down right now. It's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. The darker the hour grows, the brighter the light of the gospel shines, and the brighter that light shines, the more people, unbelievers, will oppose it. But we ought to be praying for the gospel to go forth, that it would have free course, goes forth unhindered. What does it mean for the word of the Lord to have free course? That it might go far and wide. That's not contained in just one area, that it would go to every place that doors would be open. Paul writes in the book of Colossians 4, verse 3, about praying for open doors where the gospel can be preached. Praying for the word of the Lord to be spread also indicates that the gospel would be glorified or would have great success in other places. When the gospel is glorified, when people believe it, they repent of their sin, they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they receive that gospel, and then they walk in holiness before God. There's a real conversion. Paul was, was not asking for superficial change. He was praying that the gospel would truly change the hearts of the people that it got to. But then you'll notice in verse 2, Paul really describes the danger of the hour and why it's so important that the Lord is faithful and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. For all men have not faith. The enemies of the cross in the Apostle Paul's day were mostly from people who were zealous about God but didn't know Christ. Religious persecution in Paul's day was primarily from religious Jews who had a zeal for the law and a zeal for works, but they did not know Jesus Christ. They were the main persecutors of the gospel. It was the Jews who were mostly responsible for persecuting those who were preaching the cross because they did not believe that Jesus Christ is that Messiah. Now in our day and age, we're seeing it uh, more not from religious segments of society, but we're seeing it from people who are truly living out their sin and living in unbelief. But do you know that even the Jew in Paul's day was just as much of an unbeliever as a rioter is today? Unbelief is unbelief, no matter what individual it's in. Unreasonable men are people who are unbelievers. Wicked men are unbelievers. We're all wicked people. And apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, apart from his righteousness, we would all still be dead in our trespasses and sins. So this is not a matter of Paul saying, you know what, I'm so much better than the world and we're so much better. No, he's saying, but they are strongly persecuting the gospel and the ministers of the gospel. But he also had in mind, as far as unreasonable and wicked men, also, the church in Paul's day was marked by false brethren, people who worshiped in the house of God together. Uh, we make an assumption often, no matter if it's this church building or another church building we go to, we often make the assumption that if there's someone assembled with us today, they all believe and proclaim the name of Christ. And sadly, that's not true. 
Not every person who proclaims the name of Christ actually knows Christ. Even Jesus himself acknowledged that not everyone who's called upon me and said, Lord, Lord, even belongs to me. There are false brethren in the church who claim the names of Christ. They claim that they're believers, but in reality, they are enemies of the gospel. The Bible describes them as tares among wheat. It's interesting, if you do a study about tares and wheat, the tares look almost identical to wheat. The picture is inside of a church house, inside of a body of believers, inside of a group that calls itself a church, there's almost a guarantee, no matter how small the congregation is, that at some point in time, there are tares among the wheat. Who are not there to advance the gospel, they are there to persecute the gospel and the gospel ministers and do all they can to hinder the gospel going forth. It almost boggles our mind that that could happen. But where better to destroy the gospel of Christ than to destroy the churches that house those people who proclaim that truth? If I wanted to hinder the gospel message today, my greatest ability to do that would be to go inside the church buildings where churches are meeting and disrupt the gospel going forth and do all I can to stop that. Oh, there might be opposition to the street preacher. And, and we, again, we, we pray for that man. We pray for his safety. And we pray that he, he continues to do a good work. But if I'm going to disrupt the ministry and the mission of a church, I'm going to find out where that church meets. And I'm going to place myself among that congregation disguised as wheat. I'm a tear. I look like one of them, but I'm not. And my purpose is to disrupt the going forth of the gospel. When Paul was writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter number 4, in verses 1 through 3, he was writing about false teachers who wouldn't be on the outside, but teachers who would be on the inside. And Paul warns Timothy to be on the lookout for this. He says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. The purpose of these false teachers would be to come in to disrupt those who believe and know the truth. Paul's request to be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. All men have not faith. There are people today who don't care about faith one bit. There are people today who don't care the fact the Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful means absolutely nothing to an unbeliever. But to the believer, the Lord is faithful means everything. The Lord is faithful to do what? He is faithful to deliver us from unreasonable and wicked men. That's what Paul was asking for. And he says, the Lord is faithful to do this. We could go back over Christian history and we could say, that doesn't mean God is going to spare that individual from martyrdom. It doesn't mean that God's going to spare them from dying for their faith. No, but every person who died for their faith 
who was in Christ Jesus, graduated into glory, and within moments was standing face to face with Jesus Christ. They were, in fact, delivered. Now, it may not be the deliverance they prayed for. It may not have been the deliverance that their church was praying for. But the deliverance was deliverance nonetheless. Paul was praying that they would be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. But the Lord is faithful. And he says, the Lord is faithful who shall establish you and keep you from evil. Friends, don't don't be shocked when you see hatred being directed at God's people. And please don't lose hope. Please do not stop being faithful. Just don't, don't say God's, God has lost control of this and why are we suffering so and why are things happening the way the Lord is faithful to establish you. And I love that phrase, and keep you from evil. Faith is not something that everyone has. As a matter of fact, it's been said many times, faith is a rare gift of God. Gifts don't go to all people. Faith is a rare gift of God. It's a gift that has been given by God Himself. But there's a promise in the Bible, there's a promise all throughout Scripture, that the church of God will never, ever, ever be fully destroyed. Ever. If you burn down every meeting house in every part of this world, the church is still not destroyed. If you scattered believers all over the world to where they could not even meet under the same roof ever again, you still will not have destroyed the church. But every time we have the ability to assemble together without persecution. Every time we, have, we stand up here and we sing about the gospel, we preach about the gospel, the word's going forth, the word of God is having free course. It is a, an occasion to be joyous in. The fact that right now we are not facing at this very second any opposition to what I'm saying. The message is going out all over the world potentially just by live streaming it. Nobody is cutting it off. Nobody's opposing it. The word's going forth. It's being unhindered right now. But it may not always, let me rephrase that, it will not always be that way. There will come a day, whether it's in our generation or generations to come, they will come through the front door of this building and this place will cease. This meeting house will be shut down. But the church that's there at that time will leave this building and they will walk out and they will continue to be the church. Right now, this is completely free course. We're seeing it. But even if you shut the building down, the word of the Lord is not stopped by the persecution of man. Faith believes that. A faith that is founded and established on Christ believes nothing can destroy God's church. But yet we know that it stands only because the church is founded and stayed upon the faithful promise of God. Why can I say the things I just said? It's because the Lord is faithful. If He wasn't faithful, I couldn't say that today. I could say potentially, this could be the end of the church today. 
This could be the end of the gospel, but yet God is faithful that He will not allow His Word, He will not allow His church to ultimately be completely silenced and destroyed. He will establish. He will keep you. The Lord is faithful, provides comfort to believers who otherwise might be disturbed. Remember, Paul was dealing with disturbing thoughts and letters to the church at Thessalonica who thought that they had missed the second coming of Christ. Remember, he's telling them, remember, the Lord is faithful. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. He did not leave you behind. He's not been here yet. Find comfort in that. But I would also say today, even in our life, we might be disturbed. Matter of fact, I guarantee at some point recently, you've been disturbed. <laughs> disturbed, irritated, inconvenienced, angry, mad, frustrated. The Lord is faithful. You see, faithlessness is subtle. You don't wake up one day faithless. You get a little bit more disturbed. You get a little bit more troubled. You get a little bit more uncomfortable. And before you know it, you think you no longer have faith. The reality is, is that's how subtle Satan operates. Satan never comes in and disrupts all in one swoop. He disrupts by pieces. Every preacher in this country, when all this started, was worried about the very thing that's happening. Every preacher was worried that what's going to happen is this is going to take a little bit, a little piece, piece by piece, day after day, month after month, God forbid, year after year, which may be, and it's going to take a little piece of people, and they're going to get a little bit more hopeless. They're going to be a little less to be comforted. And before you know it, you're going to have people that are going to say, is my faith really worth standing for? That's the subtlety of the devil. Satan has never worked in a way that is flashy and is sudden. It's subtle. It's not a battle against flesh and blood. It's a battle against the principalities and the power of the air. The battle you see unfolding before your eyes is not where the real battle is. The battle is not against flesh and blood. The battle is spiritual. There is a demonic, satanic agenda that is going on behind all of mankind. There always has been. But greater is he that is in you than he is in the world. Faith believes God already has the victory. We live as if the battle is completely already resolved. We live because we say God is faithful. Even if you're overrun with false teachers, even if you're overrun with gospel opposers and gospel haters, remember, we've learned, Paul's been teaching us that the mystery of iniquity, Satan has already been at work. Don't be troubled in mind. Don't be fearful. God who is faithful. What is God always going to be faithful to? He will always be faithful to His purposes. He will always be faithful to His promises. And He will always be faithful to His people. Always, always, always. And the reality is no true believer will ever be able to be deceived by Satan to the point that he's overcome by the devil. 
you realize a child of God can never be overcome by Satan. He will not let it happen. He will not let you be deceived beyond the point where Satan says, I got one of yours. Satan can never have one of God's people. Oh, it may look like it for a while. It may look like God, 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 let him go. No, Satan didn't get him. They're still God's, they're still God's people. God's people will not be overtaken in false doctrine. They're not going to be overcome by Satan. Ultimately, those who are truly in Christ will never fall away. That word, he will establish and keep you from the evil one or from evil, that's a reference to Satan himself. We put it this way, Satan cannot have you. No matter how hard he tries, he can't have you. He'll establish and keep you. The Lord is faithful to keep you from Satan. He is faithful to keep you from every snare that the devil sets. Verse 4, Paul says, and we have confidence in the Lord touching you. In other words, Paul says, I have great confidence in what the Lord is doing concerning you. That ye both do and will do the things which we command you. It's interesting that Paul has confidence in these believers. He says, I have confidence not in you, but I have confidence in the Lord working in you. In other words, these are, it is not your strength, believer. It's not your wisdom. It's not even your good behavior. It's the faithfulness of the Lord and his grace toward you that is going to allow you to go on living for him. Without God, Jesus himself said it, without me, you can do nothing. We read that passage from Luke because I think we often, as our call to worship, I think we often fall prey to the reality that we think God has somehow taken his eye off of us. We have every confidence in God because he's faithful. Paul could say this not because they were enabling themselves, but because through the strength and the enabling of God, they would be able to follow him in obedience. Paul is in essence telling them, we have confidence that as God gives you the strength, you will continue to walk in the faith of Christ. You will do those things that his word teaches. Paul did not put anything upon these people, but what were the commandments of God. You see, false teachers always come in with an idea that there's more laws, more rules, more things you need to follow. False teachers always try to put more on you than what God puts on you. Remember that. You can identify false doctrine very easily. It always puts more on you than God's ever put on you. Matter of fact, it would require more of you to follow a false God than it does to be in Christ. Which is pretty remarkable because we have the idea that, oh, God needs us to do so much. No, the false teachers put more on you. Remember, Paul's trying to guard against them thinking that these false teachers who were gaining a foothold even among the Thessalonians, he wanted to remind them that you'll be able to stand, remember the commandments of God. The commandments of God are the same for every believer throughout every generation, every country, and every situation. 
It's amazing to me today, there are people who say, well, this law of God applies in this country, but it doesn't apply in this country. There's no such thing. Or this is Middle Eastern Christianity, this is an American Christianity. There is no such thing as American Christianity and Mid-Eastern Christianity. There's no such thing as Russian Christianity or South African Christianity. It is all about Jesus Christ. It's the same everywhere in every nation. Paul wanted them to understand, walk in the things God's commanded you to do. Don't be taken away by false teachers. And I love what he says here in verse 5. He says, And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. Paul gives us a bit of a summary here of what most every believer, I think, needs to be reminded of today. He's telling them, let your heart be directed towards two things. Number one, let your heart be directed at God's love for you. The love of God. Direct your heart and the Lord direct your heart. That's a prayer request that the Lord will direct your heart to remind you of his love for you. If you have the love of Christ, you have everything. Absolutely everything. But then he said, and into the patient waiting for Christ. This is the very thing that was the cause of controversy. Remember, they thought they had missed Christ's second coming. He's reminding them with confidence, direct your hearts towards the love of Christ and his coming, which is still on the horizon. He's comforting them by reminding them, you have not missed what those false teachers were teaching you. You have not missed the second coming of Christ. So now, since you haven't missed it, direct your hearts into the coming of the Lord and in His love. Friends, it's the same thing today. No matter how dark the day gets, there's two things you as a believer need to be doing. Reminding yourself, direct your heart to the love of Christ that He has for you and the patient looking for His return. The reality is is that our heart is directed towards Christ's love for us and a desire and a longing for the return of Christ. Everything else in our life begins to fall and take place. It takes shape. So much of our worry and our concern about this life is because we get our hearts not directed on the love of Christ and His return. You're getting your eyes too fixated on a world that's going to burn up. You're getting your eyes too fixated on a world system. You're getting your ideas and your plans and thinking, this is what I'm here for. No, you're here to glorify God. And this time on this earth is very, very short. God gives us all these extra blessings in this life. These are bonuses, folks, but this is not why He's put us here. He's put us here in order that we might proclaim the saving message of the gospel and that we, through us, that He would be glorified through our lives. If we understand the love of God that's been shed abroad in our own hearts, the result is going to be we're going to have a love for others. Folks, can I tell you, it's really hard to love others. It's easy to love others when they do what we want them to do. It's really hard to love others when they don't do what we want them to do. 
But do you know what the love of Christ does? The love of Christ directs our hearts to remember that we were loved by God when we are not lovable. We're loved by Christ. He came to us not because we all of a sudden became good people, good loving people. No, He loved us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. We're not lovable. (laughs) But when we know the love of Christ has been given to us, we ought to respond by even the greatest commandment Jesus said, love thy neighbor as thyself. Who is my neighbor? It's all men. It's all people. Just the people that treat me well? No, it's all people. Love your neighbor. We have a love for others. The principle of love overcomes so many things in our life. When you're seeking God's glory, you're reminded of God's love and how I ought to extend love and forgiveness to someone else. What does looking for the return of Christ do? It puts the world and its problems in proper perspective. Paul said it many, many times. We are not citizens of this world. You're pilgrims passing through. The more our eyes get off of Christ's return, the more our hearts get turned away from thinking on the love of Christ, the more we lose sight of who Jesus is, we lose sight of who God is, and suddenly the world now becomes the most important thing that we do. As citizens of a heavenly kingdom, we're waiting for the king and his kingdom to come. There are some today who would say, I have faith, but they're not looking forward to Christ's kingdom. I'm not sure you have saving faith. If we don't have faith in desiring to look for Jesus Christ to come and make all things perfect and to be in a sinless communion with our Savior, do we really have saving faith? You see, if we keep looking for the return of Christ, if we keep meditating on His love for us, you will be able to endure the temporary emphasis is on temporary trials and afflictions of this world. And it'll even allow us to receive the reproach and maybe even the persecutions of those who hate the gospel. It is possible for a believer, knowing that the Lord is faithful, to even in the day and age in which we're living, to be comfortable to be joyous, and to be at peace. It is possible. It doesn't feel that way. But every time we feel all out of sorts, oftentimes it's because we've gotten our eyes off of the love of Christ and we've stopped looking for His return. It happens. It's, it's subtle. I can't tell you, if you don't guard against this, you'll leave here today, amen, in every one of those statements. And by Friday, you'll be all out of sorts again. Because the world is going to, put, it's going to push up against you and everything you think is going to be challenged man, as you walk out this door today. Don't expect to see somebody proclaiming the good news of Christ in the midst of the dark world we're seeing now. That's not what's going to get the coverage. But there are people 
who are living just as comfortably, just as joyous, and just as much at peace now as they've ever been. Why? Because they know that it's all found in Christ. It's found in their relationship to God, not in their present circumstances. Every one of us has circumstances and situations that we want gone. Guarantee it. All of you do. You want them gone. But if they don't go away, there's still a place of comfort and there's still a place of joy and peace and love and it's found in Christ. Paul, as he finishes just these couple of verses here, verse 5 is really a repetition of verse number 3. It's only by the grace of God that our hearts should continually return to and be reminded and think upon the truth of God's grace in the gospel. You see, when we understand that God the Father loves each of His children, Charles Spurgeon put it this way, and I, I, can't, I cannot put this any more beautifully than he said, our Father loves each of His children as if He had no others. We must peer into this abyss of love, plunge into this sea, dive into this depth unsearchable. God loves each of his children as if there are no other children. That's an amazing thing. When Paul says that God may direct your heart into that, he's telling them that your heart might be directed into the immeasurable greatness of God's love. You cannot even get to the bottom of God's love for you. You're not going to find it on a Hallmark card. You're not going to find it in something that can be, can be illustrated. You're going to find it at the cross. You're going to find the greatest demonstration of love of Jesus Christ dying for His own and shedding His own blood paying the penalty for somebody else's sin, not for his own. What a joy it is to know that because the Lord is faithful, those who are in Christ will always be in Christ. Those who are in Christ today will be in Christ thousands of years from now. And it brings us back to this whole idea of being counted worthy. The only reason we are counted worthy to be included in the love of God and to even be able to proclaim that the Lord is faithful is because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Next week as we continue, Paul is going to end this letter with some very strong wording regarding how they ought to treat one another. It's the only time really in the letter that Paul brings them to a place of where there's there is a bit of a rebuke. He rebukes them about some of the things that start to happen within their congregation of people, and we'll be dealing with those next week. But today, for this moment, this hour, I want us to leave here just remembering the Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful. We'll con conclude with our reading from the Valley of Vision this morning. We're in chapter number 7, page 308. Uh, if you have a different edition, it's entitled Truth in Jesus. We'll read this and then we'll have a closing hymn together. Truth in Jesus. Life-giving God, quicken me to call upon thy name. For my mind is ignorant, 
my thoughts vagrant, my affections earthly, my heart unbelieving, and only thy spirit can help my infirmities. I approach thee as father and friend, my portion forever, my exceeding joy, my strength of heart. I believe in thee as the God of nature, the ordainer of providence, the sender of Jesus, my savior. My guilty fears discourage an approach to thee, but I praise thee for the blessed news that Jesus reconciles thee to me. May the truth that is in him illuminate in me all that is dark, establish in me all that is wavering, comfort in me all that is wretched, accomplish in me all that is of thy goodness, and glorify in me the name of Jesus. I pass through a veil of tears, but bless thee for the opening gate of glory at its end. Enable me to realize as mine the better heavenly country. Prepare me for every part of my pilgrimage. Uphold my steps by thy word. Let no iniquity dominate me. Teach me that Christ cannot be the way if I am the end. That he cannot be redeemer if I am my own savior. That there can be no true union with him while the creature has my heart. That faith accepts him as Redeemer and Lord, or not at all. Amen. Let's stand and we'll conclude and we'll sing the hymn together, page number 77.